And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pain and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was cut up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. I guess what I would need to say to this is, as a mother, I can only imagine the anguish that this woman was going through until she knew that God was going to be there to save her child. I'll say that um, I'll praise him and a thousand hallelujahs. Amen. Thank you. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to love for you to grab them. You can, of course, take a picture of the QR code and find the message card. Thank you, Ms. Donna. We appreciate it so much. I would love for you to grab your Bibles if you have them, though. I want you to see it. I want you to get some context of what's happening here. I'm going to highlight more in this chapter than what we just read or what you heard Donna read in the first 11 verses. Over the last few weeks, I haven't mentioned much about it, but the Lord has been opening up some doors for me to talk with and to serve some Pakistani leaders. We'll give you the all gist of what's taking place, but there's something unique happening in that there are multiple people that have given my name to Pakistani leaders uh, in the last few months uh, of being a person uh, to engage and to have conversation about the gospel. And uh, one particular group of evangelists have been reaching out to me, and so I've been building some relationship with them. And um, it's a, a, a sister and her brother. Her name is Purwa, her brother's name, Akarwa. And they live in Pakistan. Um, been building relationship, having conversation with them. I actually had a really good meeting with her yesterday. This is a picture of her, a beautiful lady, uh, very, very smart, very educated. She um, went to the university setting in Pakistan to be a doctor. Um, but because she became a believer, she was, of course, kicked out in according to Sharia law. In Pakistan, of course, you have no freedom to be a believer. And in Sharia law, any Muslim can kill a believer if they confess Christ. And so you can kill them, you can slaughter them right there on the street. And so she was kicked out because she's faced so much persecution. And so she began to tell me some stories yesterday 
of what's been taking place. Now, her and her brother have had death threats against them for the last six years, and they keep going into remote areas. She said, uh, Pastor Craig, I don't know why, but all the Westerners want to come to Pakistan and preach in the cities and large coliseums. She says all they're preaching to is people who've already heard the gospel. I don't care to do that. I want the gospel preached to people who don't yet know the gospel. And so she said, is this a relationship that can happen? Do you have a heart not to just come in from the West and import Western tactics, but to reach people? And so uh, I'll show you a couple of pictures. Uh, this is where I'll be preaching this Wednesday, actually, um, to a group of, of villagers all around and begin to build this relationship. And uh, I was so stirred. I've been so stirred listening to their stories because of the miracles that are taking place. I mean, absolute miracles. So they had an Elijah showdown a couple weekends ago where the Muslims come in and pray for a man who is blind. And then she and her brother come and pray for the man who's blind in the name of Jesus. And he gets the, the man gets healed. Uh, this past weekend, a girl, lady, a Muslim comes and gives her heart to Christ, comes to the revival the next day in a different village and brings her husband. And um, it, is, it is absolutely epic what's going on in the Middle East right now. And um, I, I don't know if you, you know this or not. She talked to me about uh, ultimately the leader of the house church movement in Iran. Now, let me catch you up to speed if you don't know this. If you're unaware, the largest revival in the world right now is taking place in Iran, the Republic of Iran. It is absolutely crazy, folks. There's dreams, there's visions, it's unbelievable miracles. The guy that's leading this revival was interviewed recently, and um, I had my wife watch a bit of piece of it last night. I want to encourage you to please do it if you're able to, but it's a fascinating look at what would actually life be like as a persecuted church, not what we call persecution. Now, if you want in on this, uh, just go to YouTube and go to Sheep Among Wolves, Sheep Among Wolves, okay? And Sheep Among Wolves, if you want to start, start with volume two, which is the narrative film. It's about an hour and 50 minutes. But I just want to warn you, you do not want to pop a bag of popcorn and sit down with your four-year-old. You will cry. You will repent. You will ask God to forgive you. You will be struck to the core of who you are as a human being. And you will get a picture of what it looks like for Revelation 12 to be lived out. Revelation 12, which you just heard read from Donna, is a picture of what people do when they love not their lives unto death. That's what the text says. They love not their lives unto death. And I'm watching this interview with this man, and they're doing all the dubbing to hide this person. So you got to listen through the dubbing, right? They're trying to protect this man. And they started talking about the church in the Western world. And normally, normally, my... I don't know if flag goes up because I think sometimes the West gets dogged in ways that are unfair to us. But sometimes we get explained in ways that are really fair to us. And when this man was asked about the church in the West, folks, it will stun you. You will hit pause on your TV. When this man who is leading, most of them, by the way, underground church in Iran, which is the fastest in the world, is led by women. When this man was asked, okay, who had friends killed and family killed and he, he literally people he loves thrown in prison, he said... It's like the West is under some sort of satanic lullaby. He said, it's like the thing with Jesus. I cannot understand it, but demons are going to the Western world. Shh, 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 go back to sleep. Shh, shh, cause no trouble. There you go. Pull up the blanket, pull up the blanket, get comfortable. Shh, shh, shh. And listen to me. As someone who's pastored 15 years, this 
resonated to the core of my soul. So we're starting a series today called What Would Jesus Undo? And what in my mind immediately do? Well, I'm fighting up here all week. Well, I can talk about shame or I can talk about guilt. I can talk about abuse. And I love all those things and the fact that Christ has set them free. But if you remember two weeks ago on this stage at Easter, I talked about the death of guilt. I talked about the death of shame and the death of the constant understanding or submission to the compulsion. But man, in my sphere of reading this chapter in Revelation, I just felt the Lord say to me, Craig, I want you to sound the alarm. And I I today want to sound the alarm. And I, by the grace of God, listen to me, I want to say there is a reason why we are getting the trash kicked out of us in the West. And by the grace of God, we and us in this room might wake up We might come out of spiritual sleepiness. We might hear the alarm of God by the Spirit, and we might see something in our day. We might cause some trouble to the kingdom of darkness in our day. And listen to me, if we don't wake up, we're going to see something in our day as well, and it's going to be gut-wrenching. It's going to be gut-wrenching for what happens in this nation. So I'm here this morning simply to sound the alarm. What would Jesus undo? Here's what he would undo. Spiritual sleepiness. He would undo spiritual sleepiness. Now, there's some things to keep in mind when you're reading Revelation chapter 12. We in Revelation are in window number three. Everybody say three. You need to know something about Revelation. Revelation is not linear. Number one Bible translation mistake in Revelation is people think it's linear. No, no, no. It's not what happens next. It's what does John see next. And what does John see next is not always linear to what is next in time. So you got to understand something. We're in window three. I got to give you context or Revelation 12 makes no sense. Revelation 1, 2, and 3 are window number one. What do you mean window number one? This is the throne room. You remember the picture? Jesus, the Lamb of God in the throne room. It's centering worship. It's this convergent space where heaven meets earth, where people see this ultimate reality where all of the nations of the earth are worshiping this slaughtered lamb, the lamb Jesus Christ. It's Christ enthroned. We're almost to get there. We'll have Ascension Sunday in a couple weeks. That's when Christ goes back to the right hand of the Father, right? Christ is, it's unbelievable. This morning, we are in that convergent space. This team led us into that convergent space. You sensed it if you were, had any kind of spiritual sight that Spidey sends it up. You, you recognize you're in the convergent space where the Lamb of God is enthroned, lifted high, and we're here to worship Him. Then you get window two. What is window two? That's the opening of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets, right? Now, between window two, right, and the blowing of the trumpets and bowls, we have an intermission. If you know theater, intermissions can be long or short. The intermission here is the third window. Revelation 12 and 13 are the third window that John sees. And And what is Revelation 12 and 13? It is a cosmic battle between God and Satan. It's a cosmic battle between good and evil. And there are two beasts, as we'll see, come up out of this sea, and we see how the dragon actually begins to make war against the people of God. So today we have two signs, one scheme. You ready? Two signs, one scheme. It's important to know that a sign is not the point, right? The point of the sign is to point to the point. The sign's not the point. The sign points to the point. So the first sign we have, let's look at the two signs. The first sign we have is this woman, okay? Donna just mentioned her. I can't imagine what it would be like to be this woman. Now, if you draw this woman out, if you had, you know, a person come up here and paint or draw out this woman, she seems a bit odd, right? You have stars, you have moon on her feet, 
It's a, it's a bit of a weird image. But you remember, you must remember why we have apocalyptic language. Why do we have apocalyptic books in the Old Testament like Daniel? And why do we have an apocalyptic book in the New Testament like Revelation? Let me tell you why. Because the imagery is meant to stir up our spirits in ways that, hey, this is Mary, doesn't. When you see, hey, this is Mary, that doesn't stir your spirit. When you imagine stars and moons and diadem and crowns, it stirs up your spirit. It engages you in the spiritual world. So the easiest reading of Revelation chapter 12 is that this is clearly the Virgin Mary. Revelation 12 is the Virgin Mary, but it's bigger than the Virgin Mary. Let me say it this way. It's not just Mary. It is her, but it's bigger than Mary. And we know that from all of the stars and the suns and moons. Now, I want to say something here. When you interpret the book of Revelation, many of you took the Revelation class with me several years ago in growth phases. There is nothing in Revelation that has already not been said somewhere else in the Bible. You need to understand that. There's nothing new in Revelation. Nothing appears for the first time. All Revelation as apocalyptic literature has been communicated to us in the 65 previous books. I cannot stress that enough when you interpret the book of Revelation. Let's think for a moment about this woman. You ready? Genesis 37, 9. Do you remember Joseph's dream? You remember what happens in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9? Joseph has a dream. Next slide. And notice what the text says. It says the... Next slide. Uh, keep going. Genesis 37... Keep going. Yep. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time, Joseph said, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Okay, watch. Keep that up there. If the sun is his father, Jacob, and the moon is his mother, Rachel, and the 11 stars are his brothers, and Joseph being the 12th star, Revelation 12 is saying the sign of this woman with 12 stars in her crown is she is actually the whole corpus of the people of God. That's who she is, right? She is the one who struggles, travails. She is Israel. She is the people of God. But she's not just Israel. Why? Because look what the prophet Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7. He says, there's coming a time when the people of God will give birth to the one who will make war against the dragon. What do we see the dragon come up in Genesis 12 and 13? Let's look at Isaiah 66. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. That is so unbelievably precise in scripture. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain come upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I who calls to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Israel is saying, or Isaiah is saying that the people of God will give birth to the one who is to make war against the dragon. So listen to me. The woman in Revelation 12 is a sign of the people of God both before Jesus and after Jesus. She represents Israel, Mary, and the church all at once. Revelation chapter 12, the first sign, this woman is the ideal picture of Jesus' church, what he desires her to be. But she's not the only sign here. Let's go to the second sign. You see the sign of the dragon. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil, the Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So his color is the color of red. He is a killer. The second sign is a murderer. He is an 
insurrectionist, so to speak. He is violent in his nature. Notice what the text says. He had seven heads. What does seven mean? Seven represents complete authority. Albeit borrowed authority, God gave him the authority. He has all authority. All authority that God gave him, he has. This is the serpent. The next one. He says it has ten horns. What are ten horns? Ten represent horns, number one, are a symbol of strength. And to have ten horns means he's got a lot of strength. Now, if you are a Bible person, you just, something went off in you when you read that text. What did your mind go back to when you read verse 9? Your mind immediately go back to Genesis 3.15, where God tells Eve, clearly there will be enmity between what? There's a coming collision between the woman and the serpent, where somebody who is an offspring of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent would strike the son's heel. Now, I want to highlight this, and ladies, if you're a lady in the room or streaming live with me today, I want you to pay really close attention for the next few moments. One of the things that happens historically and consistently throughout human history, when a culture gives itself over to depravity and wickedness and turns its back on God, women and children suffer the most. Follow with me. Over and over and over, and it's what's going to happen in America, I'm telling you. Over and over and over again. Why? Because when a culture says, forget the things of God, turn our back on God and and turn to depravity, women and children are brutalized. Why? Let me try to explain to you why. Stephen Dempster, who is a fabulous theologian, he tells us that one of the greatest themes of the Old Testament is this theme of a woman versus a beast. Let's look at this quote from Stephen Dempster. Powerful quote. Next slide. Eve versus the serpent. Sarah and Rebecca versus barrenness. Tamar versus Judah. Jochebed and Miriam versus Pharaoh. Deborah, Jael versus Sisera. Ruth and Naomi versus death. Hannah versus barrenness. Jehoshaba versus Atalia. In all these examples of struggle, these women of faith are engaged in a battle to save the people of God. The victory of Esther over Haman dramatically continues this theme. Ladies, Satan hates you. Satan despises you. He can't stand you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to devour our kids. He wants to take our good godly seed away from us. This is what's happening in Revelation chapter 12. By the way, just a quick insert. If such things interest you, can I give you my favorite resource on the book of Revelation? It's Eugene Peterson's book on Revelation called Reverse Thunder. The Revelation of St. John, the Praying, the Imagination. My favorite text on the book of Revelation. But Eugene Peterson does an excellent job with this one specific chapter. Now, we switch and we get our first non-sign. Sign of a woman, sign of a dragon. Now the woman gives birth to a son, and the son's not a sign, because the son will rule over the world with an iron scepter. Who is the son? His name is Jesus Christ. Now, if you know your Bible, is this not Matthew chapter 2? Y'all, do you see Revelation chapter 12 is the Christmas story? It's John's Christmas story. It's why John didn't give you a Christmas story in his gospel. Think about it for a moment. Think about it. What happens when Mary gives birth to Jesus Christ? Does not 
Herod set forth his face to kill every Hebrew boy under the age of two. Do you not see the dragon getting ready to pounce on the Son of God? Do you not see the dragon getting ready to pounce on God's seed? And does not, like the text say, did you hear what Donna read? The Son is whisked away. Did you see it? He was whisked away to heaven in Revelation 12. Where is he whisked away in Matthew 2? Egypt. He's taken out of the place where, where Herod is killing babies and he's taken off to Egypt in order to be reserved. And then ultimately he's taken away in ascension to the right hand of God. I love this. I love this. Eugene Peterson said, this is a different kind of Christmas, isn't it? Watch this quote. Eugene talked to us. It is St. John's spirit-anointed task to supplement the work of St. Matthew and St. Luke so that the nativity cannot be sentimentalized into coziness, nor domesticated into worldliness. This is not the nativity story we grew up with in December, but it is the nativity story all the same. Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. Jesus' birth excites evil. You're seeing this in this chapter, Revelation 12. Not just Christmas, but the war between God and Satan across all time. It's the war behind all worlds. Revelation chapter 12 is called the cosmic war. And we need to hear this. Hear me. We have a victor in this war already, don't we? We have a victor. What's his name? Jesus. In fact, can I just now switch and encourage you for a moment? Six times in chapter 12 alone, we read that the dragon was thrown down. You know what the word thrown down is in Greek? You're going to like this, especially if you like slang. If you had a little bit of a rough pass, you're going to like this. You know what the word is in Greek? The dragon was bounced. That's literally the translation. The dragon was straight up bounced out of heaven. If you go read Isaiah 4, 14 and Ezekiel 28, you'll see that the dragon, the serpent, the wily, crafty one was bounced straight up out of heaven. You see in this passage, rejoicing in heaven, but woe to those who are still living on the earth. That's you and me. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Notice what the text says. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, Mary, church, went off to make war on the church and the rest of the church's offspring, Jesus' offspring, that's you and I, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Watch this. And he, the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. Look at me. Look at me. Look right up here. If you want to know why things are so bad and difficult right now, if you want to know why there is disease and there is death and there is depression and there is anxiety and there is injustice and there is racism and there's every other wickedness in the world, the Bible is trying to dial you into it. He's trying to dial you in to what's actually happening in our world. We are not church to be people with rose-colored glasses on trying to deny the brutality around us. We actually have the answer to why the brutality exists. We actually have the answer when the world in America doesn't have the answer of why the world is as dark as the world is. If you want to know why things are so hard, we are in a war with a defeated and desperate enemy who is literally longing to destroy anybody who will give him an inch. That's where you live. That's where I live. Now the good news is that ultimate victory is ours. But Paul tells us that we live in the in-between. And as the in-betweeners who have already heard of Jesus' victory but have not yet seen it fully, we have to live a certain way. What is that in-between life? Well, let's read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what he says we should do in the in-between. We should not be outwitted 
by Satan, for we are not dumb or ignorant of his designs. You know what the word designs means? We're not ignorant of his schemes. We're not to be outwitted by Satan, and we're not were to understand his schemes. The enemy of our soul has been set loose on the earth by God to literally ultimately make war against the offspring of the woman. And we, according to the scripture, are not to be ignorant of his schemes. So what I would like to do is like to spend my next 20 minutes and close this down of chatting to us about the schemes so we can spot them, we can counteract them, we can undo spiritual sleepiness, and we can punch this sucker in the face. All right? I know it's not church talk, but it is church talk. That's part of the problem. Does anybody want to punch the sucker in the face? Okay, let me tell you where I'm at as a pastor right now, and we'll get really, really honest and very vulnerable with you as your pastor. I want to, I want to do more than punch him in the face for the people I pastor. We are not to be outwitted by the schemes and design of the evil one. Here are three schemes that the enemy, you see in this passage, are constantly using to get people sleepy, to lull people to, in the words of our Iranian brother, a satanic lullaby. Here's the three words. Accusation, deceit, death. The three schemes employed by the enemy of your soul to destroy you, to destroy me as God's children, accusation, deceit, death. Let's look at accusation. Verse 10 tells us what? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Look at me, church. Accusation is the full frontal attack of our enemy. He exists to accuse you and to get you to agree with that accusation. Listen to me. Hear me. The number one tactic of the enemy is to take from you what is yours and to take you out of this fight altogether. And the way he does that is by consistent day-to-day accusation of your soul. He accuses you. He accuses God. He accuses me. He accuses others. He tries to accuse to create discord, to create discord, and to create doubt, and to create depression, and to try to dehumanize, and to ultimately destroy destroy others. And I think it's important for you to know this is almost always born out of a wound or a word. Now, I've preached this before, but I, don't, I wish I had 10 minutes to go into all of this. This is the good news of being around for a few decades. When you pastor a community, you can say, hey, I'll be, we'll, we'll talk about this. Watch this. A wound and a word is where the accusation's power lies. What are you saying? Everyone in this room is carrying some wound from your family of origin. Everyone. That does not mean your parents are bad people. does not mean your parents didn't give it the best shot. Maybe you interpret it wrong, but you had something spoken to you as a child or something spoken to you as a child or a teenager or something happened to you where the enemy penetrated and he got in and he sliced you. And as we've grown up, that accusation of we aren't man enough or we aren't good enough or we aren't smart enough or we're not pretty enough, we're not whatever enough. We're at softball yesterday with a bunch of nine-year-olds and I'm telling them about getting on the field and one of the girls in the middle of the softball looks at the others and says, all these other teammates are so pretty and I'm just so ugly because of these moles. How in the world does a nine-year-old know that? Because we have an enemy that does everything he can to destroy us with accusation. 
It is the number one tactic of the enemy to accuse, to lob accusations. And what happens is we grow up with it, and then what do we do? We begin to agree with it, and it just destroys us, people. It just eats us alive. And this is his primary game. He begins to accuse you and have you agree with the accusation as to take you completely out of the game. And y'all, can I just say to us, we are so oblivious to it. We're so oblivious to it, are we not? I mean, come on, think about it. Like, watch. You know how many people have told me in the last almost 20 years of pastoring? Well, Pastor Craig, I don't know how to pray. Well, that's ridiculous. You know how to pray. That's an accusation you believed. And when you believe that accusation, of course you won't pray. No, I, I really don't know how to pray. Can you say to God, I don't know how to pray? Help me to pray? That's praying. That's prayer. That's, it's nonsense to say, I don't know how to pray. It's nonsense to say, I don't know how to evangelize. You bought in the lie. Of course you're not powerful for God because you're listening to the lies and agreeing with the accusations and getting taken out of the game. It's absolute nonsense. He is the accuser of the brethren. And what people do is they buy into this lie and then they've agreed to the lie. So good Lord, you don't pray. Because you convince yourself you can't pray when all praying is, is talking to God. Oh, oh, Pastor Gray, when I read the Bible, I don't get it. Well, of course you don't. But you can read because I can ask you about the Atlanta Braves and you can tell me all about that. I can ask you about Joanna Gaines and Chip Gaines and you can, and what she's doing and you can tell me all about that shiplap, okay? You can tell me all about that stuff. But the reality is, listen, you can't what? Read the Bible and grab hold of it? Listen, we know the word, we just don't want to do it. People are like, well, the Bible's not coming alive. Of course the Bible's not coming alive. Because when it comes alive, you know what will happen? You've finally woken up. You become a threat to darkness. Of course. It's not just going to wake and oh, just somehow just wake up one day. Those accusations of passive Christianity, they're done, folks. They're done. Perwal looked at me in the face yesterday and she said to me, I don't understand why you folks in the West will not share the gospel with everybody you see. You have the freedom to tell everybody about Jesus, and we are praying for that freedom night and day. It is time to wake up, undo the spiritual sleepiness. When you believe it, the accusation, it takes you out of the fight, and the enemy is like, shh. Tell me that's not what's going on in America. I don't know how to study. I don't know how to pray. That's accusation. It's not true. It's absolutely not true about you. Here's an idea. Fight him. Open up your Bible like a man or a woman of God. Say, God, I don't get it. Help me, God. Help me get it. Or swallow your pride and say to someone who is in your connect group, I'm sorry, I've been an absolutely lazy moron and I need someone to help me. And I've acted like I got it all together and I've acted like I know how to read the Bible. But this is, this is waking up, folks. This is Jesus undoing spiritual sleepiness. Because look at me. If you believe the accusations, you will run from God rather than abide in His presence. And all of the goodness of life resides in His presence. Look at me, look at me. If you believe the accusations, you will neglect the scriptures which are the sword of the Spirit. 
How do I battle those accusations? With the sword of the spirit. Y'all, this is awesome, folks, is it not? Like my dad doesn't get to tell me who I am. Merit does not get to tell me who I am. The Bible tells me who I am. My kids don't get to tell me who I am. The Bible tells me who I am. My friends around me don't get to tell me who I am. The Bible tells me who I am. You, even you, don't have the power to tell me who I am. You, you think I could get up and do what I'm doing right now in front of this congregation if I put the power to find me in your hands? You don't get to tell me who I am. The Bible tells me who I am. I have to please the Lord. Now listen, you can vote with your feet and go on down to the next church, can't you? But I have to please the Lord. And you have to please the Lord. We have to please the Lord. We have to be people who wake up and say, God, are you going to use me in my day? And then think about this. How free are you? You want to know? You're talking about freedom. How free are you to fight the accusation of the enemy with the word of God when you get to that place? But in order to do that, you have to know the word of God, which requires you to come out from under the agreement that you've been agreeing with Satan for the last 15 years that you can't know the word of God and you can't understand the word of God. Are you kidding me? God put the cookies on the bottom shelf. They're right there for you to grab, to grab, to eat, to engage, to low, to say, you know what, God, do something in my life. It is not the elite who makes make war against the enemy. It is the people of God who make war against the enemy. Accusation gets its power from what? Agreement. The moment you agree with it. You have to be able to discern and say, this is not true about me. It's not true about him. It's not true about the gossip I'm hearing about somebody else in this church. This is not true about that group of people. It's not true. And the reason we're so hostile to one another in America right now is because the enemy has accused another group of people and we agree with him and we turn on each other. Satan is the problem, not the Democrats. Can I make it any clearer? Satan is the problem, not the Republicans. Satan is the enemy. How we overcome the enemy? by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I want you to listen closely. Look at me, church. To be 99% known is to be unknown. To be 99% known is to be unknown. Let me talk about how this plays out. If you have that one secret, percent secret over here, and they're like, that's it, bro. You're awesome, bro. You're good. You've got like 99% freedom. Like that's just 1%. Like it's all good. Just that 1% that nobody knows about over here. Just that 1%. It's like a shame of some kind or it's something that happened in your past or it's a current struggle of sin that no one knows about. And because it's down to 1%, you can be in groups, right? You can come and connect groups and, and you can be like, yeah, I got struggles. You know what my struggle is, coordinate group? I just, I just care too much sometimes. You know, you get this 1% over here. It's like, gee, I just, I don't know what it is, but my, just, my heart is just really caring about people a lot. I, I don't know, I just kind of have maybe too much mercy on people. And you got this 1% over here, right? I got kind of this empathy over here. And, and so what happens is when you're 99% known, look at me, look at me. When you're 99% known, you're unable to receive love. You're unable to receive affection. And any words from any other person, including your pastor, because anytime someone tries to tell you that, you go, well, if they knew that 1%, they wouldn't believe that about me. So as long as you keep on the 1%, you'll never accept what God desires for you. And you'll constantly live in accusation and never come to a place of constant freedom to be able to do what God wants you to do in your life. And as long as you hold on to the 1%, you'll constantly dismiss every good word spoken to you from anybody else. Oh, if they really know this about me, 
then they wouldn't say that about me. If they really could understood this about me, they wouldn't feel that way. And you go, well, well, you know what? I, I just, if they, if they were to know that, you know, they, their view and their respect and their love for me is going to evaporate. So what do I do? I have to defend that 1% with all of the willpower I can muster up. I use every known tactic to man to defend the 1%. And what happens is we believe that if someone finds this out, it's death. It's death. Why? Because I'm protecting a wound. Now, here is the difference between a wound and a scar. If someone touches a wound, you punch them or you back away. It's not that way with a scar. If somebody touches a scar, it's totally different. A wound still hurts. So what do you do? You protect it and you defend it. And Jesus loves you too much to allow the wound to continue to fester any longer. That's why he meets a woman on the Samaritan woman in John 4. And he's not being mean by telling her to go get her husband. He, she says, I want living water. In order for her to get living water, she's going to have to be healed of her 1%. And so he says in his mercy and wisdom, go get your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. That's right. You don't have a husband. Let's bring up the 1% lady. You've had five husbands and the husband you're with now is not him. And in that moment, the woman doesn't want to talk about it. And Jesus is saying, I'm here for that. I'm here to heal that so that living water can flow through you and you can be woken up from the spiritual sleepiness. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. It is an epic tragedy that the place Jesus wants to do his most significant work is the place that you and I spend so much energy trying to protect, trying to defend, trying to hide, trying to keep out of the light. If you will bring it in the light, Jesus can heal it and you can wake up. You can wake up. And the accusation won't cause you to flounder anymore. It won't keep you in bondage. You'll be free. It is crushing for people, Christian people, church people. Jesus wants to go in that area of 1% and heal and reorient so that accusation doesn't hold weight anymore. But here's the crazy thing. It's not just accusation. You know what the second tactic or scheme of the enemy is? Deceit. Look at verse 9. It says he's the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus said it like this, John 8, 44. Notice how Jesus talks about it. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For Satan is a liar and the father of lies. I need you to follow me here. This is not just false or what we call bad information. Hear me. The enemy wants you to feel a certain way. Hear me. It's not just knowing what's bad. It's feeling something that is false. If I've learned anything in pastoring, it's that second one's more than the first. It's He wants you to feel something that's not true. It isn't just, oh, I believe wrongly. This is the enemy trying to get you feel like God's holding out on you. He's trying to get you to feel like God is not enough. He wants you to question that God is not God enough. He wants you to question and feel that God is holding his goodness from you. So what does he do? He adds and takes away and he twists and he calls bad good and he calls good bad. And what happens? He has millennia of practice, watch this, to deceive and distort. So I want to give you real quick, church, two ways that I think he comes in deceit. I'm going to give you two ways that I think is happening in our culture. Number one, the primary way, the first way is false doctrine. False doctrine. So what is this? This is... It's believing about God things that are not true about God, right? And does doctrine matter? Yes. yes. So people say, oh, I'm a spirit-filled church. You know, doctrine doesn't matter. It's like kills the spirit. Well, listen to me. Doctrine not embodied? Yeah, it does. Doctrine believed but not practiced? Yes, it does. But here, 
Doctrine isn't an end in itself, is it? What does doctrine cause us to do? It's to cause us to what? To gaze and marvel at the, the, the beauty of the God who is Lord of the doctrine. So doctrine causes us to gaze at Jesus. So false doctrine, here's the second way <clears throat> that he deceives, and I've seen it a lot lately. It's not new. And it's getting so much traction on our side of the world. So when you pastor for a little bit of time, you live long enough to then see these transition seasons pass through. So you know what happened in the last 10 years? There's been something in America called the emergent church. And what happened in the emergent church? I didn't really pay much attention to it because it was really squishy doctrinally. It did, it's almost dying out already. It didn't say much. It just asked a lot of questions. What if? What if? What if? What if Mary wasn't a virgin? You might see it on KSU's campus still a little bit. Well, what if God wasn't really upset by my sexual sin? What if? What if? What if? Right now, it's under the banner of deconstruction. Let me go there a minute. We've all seen this, right? Deconstruction. It's very popular in America to deconstruct the faith. Can I just say this real quick? I'm going to say it. Every generation will need to just deconstruct something, but just not orthodoxy or sound doctrine. There's going to have to be something that's going to be deconstructed. But here's my story. I'll give you a quick story. I was saved in 2002, so I was saved at kind of the pinnacle or the top of what in America was called the religious right movement. And let me tell you something about the religious right movement. Some of y'all like this because they, they call sin what it is. And they had no problem talking about sin. The church I grew up in, they called sin, sin. Are you with me? Anybody grew up in this kind of environment? But here's the only problem with it. I'm a, me being saved in that moment, it was like <clears throat> they lacked the empathy and compassion to actually address the person who's in sin. Have you ever met these kind of people? It's almost like they're talking about sinners that they don't have any, they don't, without knowing any. Have you ever heard anybody talk about sinners without knowing any sinners? It's really weird, isn't it? Right? It's like, oh, I'm a sinner. It just sounds like that, right? And that's what, that's what I kind of grew up in, is this, this call sin what it is, but to have no empathy or compassion for somebody who's struggling. <clears throat> so when I talk about sin, I want you to hear me. I want to talk about it in ways that Jesus does in the Gospels. To call it what it is, we have to call it what it is, but we also, listen to me, I want you to hear me. We must approach the sin of our nation with personal compassion and mercy on people. And they need to know I love them. And they need to know that God has a better life for them and that they can be set free from this. They're not, and they're, they need to know they're not a project to me. They need to know that they're not my project in my workplace. So that was my experience. But can I tell you what's happening now? Now is an outright deconstruction of orthodoxy. But it's not the first time it's happened. Can I give you two historic examples? First one, remember Thomas Jefferson? Anybody know Thomas Jefferson? Third president of the United States, one of the smartest men to ever live, right? You know Tom. Anybody know Tom? So you know, you know what Thomas did? Thomas was a deist. People were like, Thomas is a Christian. America was founded by Christians. No, no, no. Hogwash. It was not. It was founded by deists. Do you know what Thomas Jefferson did? Thomas Jefferson took scissors and a Bible. Okay? I've told you about this. You can go see it in the museum at the, of the Bible in D.C. You know what Thomas Jefferson did? He took scissors. He grabbed his Bible, and he went and he cut out everything in his Bible that had a supernatural element, all miracles. Why? Because he was a child of the Enlightenment. And as a child of the Enlightenment, God can't be supernatural. There can be no miracles. We call it the Jefferson Bible. Did you know slave owners did this? Slave owners went and got their own scissors and cut the book of Exodus out of the Old Testament. And they cut out every verse that would allow a slave to 
read it and compel themselves to want freedom and think they deserve freedom. We call it the slave Bible. You know what's happening in deconstruction right now? Ah, God certainly doesn't, he doesn't mean that about sexuality and gender. Cut it out. He certainly doesn't mean the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus is the only way. Just cut that right out of it. He's obviously, Jesus, God, God, the Bible's obviously never really met a cool Mormon. Like, cut that out of there. And and, and God's obviously never met a Muslim. The exclusivity of Jesus, just cut that right out of So now I have a Bible, ultimately, that lets me do whatever I want. I know y'all think that's far, but I'm going to tell you, folks, and hear my soul. That is catching on with the 20-year-olds like you would not believe right now. Why? As they walk out the back doors of our churches, what's happened is we've not been serious about teaching God's Word to young people for the last 30 or 40 years, and we've tried to entertain them as churches in the West instead of raising up our children to know the Bible. And what's happening now, parents, listen to me, is they're, to- they're scrolling TikTok and Instagram Reels with no, no potential interaction or parental interaction with their TikTok Reels and their Instagram Reels, and they come across one-minute blurbs from some dude who has an MDiv with evidently, if you're an MDiv, you're really smart. And they say things in one minute like, oh, the word homosexual is not even in the Bible at all. That word's not even in the text. And God would never. God is for this. And they're being discipled on their phone. Why? Because we haven't given them what they need to thrive in exile. We've not given them what they need to survive in the midst of our culture. This is deceit, y'all. It's no exclusivity of Jesus. It is, oh, you can do whatever you want with your gender. Oh, you can do whatever you want with your human sexuality. It is deceit. It is deceit. It's deceit. And it's a tale as old as time. And what essentially happens is we make the Bible worthless. I love what Tim Keller says here. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, now what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real marriage will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your own imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It's the absolute precondition for it. Isn't that good? Hear me. If God never bothers you or presses any weight on you, chances are the God you're worshiping is your own imagination. Accusation, deceit, and then lastly, death. Now, verse 3 talks about the dragon being red. Whoever's playing keys can come. Now, I want you to understand something, that our brothers and sisters in the first century would have processed this text a lot differently. If you go watch Sheep Among Wolves, you will see that our Iranian brothers and sisters would view this text the way I'm about to tell you. Not like we would. When first century brothers and sisters see the dragon that's dead, they aren't just talking about, oh, that was embarrassing sharing my faith at Oahu High School. That was kind of like persecution. Oh, that was embarrassing talking to my coworker about Jesus. No, this is like death, death. This is like be martyred for your faith, death. This is be killed. And Hebrews tells us, look at me, church, what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. I want you to hear this verse. Please let the Spirit of the Lord apply this verse to your heart. 
This is what Jesus accomplished for you and for me. Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are constantly in lifelong slavery. The dragon and watch, look, look. The dragon in Revelation 12 intimidates with death, but Jesus disarmed him by making death gain for us. <laughs> My wife and I, we sat on the porch last night and just talked about this verse and something she's currently struggling with, just trying to be what you do in marriages and fight the accusation of the enemy. The enemy tries to tries to intimidate with death and Jesus disarms it by making death our greatest gain. So that Perwood told me yesterday morning in the last six months I've had 20 something death threats. They keep telling me don't go into the villages you won't come back alive. And she says God still keeps preserving me. There's absolutely no fear whatsoever. For goodness sakes, we're Westerners. We're supposed to die when we're 97. Right? And yet it's that freedom that makes us impervious to the attacks of the enemy. When you can watch, spot the accusations of the enemy, when you can reject the deceit and stand on the promises of God, then you can say with the Apostle Paul, Hey, hey, what can man do to me? What can befall me? What can man do to my life? But listen, look at me, church. Look at me. If we don't even know we've bought into the accusations and we can't even see we're, we're ultimately deceived and we're terrified of far less things than death. Look at me. I just don't think the place church is going to be able to make the kind of noise I'm hoping we make on this planet. Sunday morning attendance alone will not be enough to survive this fight. Now listen to listen to me. Some of us in this room even are having a hard time being consistent on Sunday mornings. I want you to hear my soul. Robust discipleship, robust ordering of our lives around the priority of Jesus, spotting the accusations and deceit of the enemy, and getting after lost people. Punching the sucker in the face is what is going to be required for us to be the believers God wants us to be in the hour that you and I. I know we're taking our shots right now, church. I know I'm your pastor. I know, I know we're taking our shots. 
The enemy has plans to harass us. He has plans to divide us. He has plans. I get it. We're in a fight. It's cosmic. You're going to get punched in the face a few times. But dadgummit, I want to punch back. I don't know if you're like me, but I ain't going down just taking them on the chin every day. I'm not going to go and leave. I, I can't give my life for that, folks. I can't give my life pastoring a church of people that like my preaching. I can't give my life for that. It's not sustainable. I can only give my life for people who are going to take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit and do what God has called us to do in the short little span we have on this round ball. To wake up, to hear the alarm, to get involved, to spot the accusation, to come out of the seat and say, God, how do you want to use me? I want, to, I want us to cause some trouble. The day of belief, y'all, I'm telling you, I'll tell you what I believe. The day of belief without behavioral transformation is going to die up real quickly in America. And I'm trying to call you into a different life. I'm trying to call you into a life that God wants to call you into, where you're fully surrendered to Him and fully alive in Him willing to be odd and awkward and outside of what seems to be acceptable. But what's happened, guys, is that over a period of time in America with not much suffering and an immaculate amount of wealth, the enemy has gone shh. ship. This is a battleship where we are at war. And I know some of you are like, I didn't sign up for this, Pastor Craig. Woo! Whoa, came to the wrong series. I thought church should make you feel good. Bro, I'm not here to make you feel good. <laughs> I'm not here to make you feel good. I want to cause darkness. To be like, dead coming, they woke up. Holy Moses, do you see that congregation in Woodstock? They woke up. They're alive. I can give my life to that. And can I tell you, as the world gets darker, power increases. And we'll see more miracles. And we'll see more resurrection life. And we'll see more light penetrating darkness than we've ever seen before. Watch this. Spot the accusation. Dismiss the deceit. Commit to something. We can go get our binky. That's our choice. I don't know about you. I gotta go down throw punches. Go read Revelation 12 today again. You're free time to let God ruminate. Undo. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. 
If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.